Amen. Well, today we're in, in, we're not going to do our regular Corinthian study. Usually, I, most uh, years on Palm Sunday, I do go ahead and just go through whatever we're going through. But today, it's been a while since we, we had a Palm Sunday message. So um, we're going to look at Matthew chapter 21, verses 1 through 11. In honor of God's word, would you stand with me as I read this passage? Matthew 21, the first 11 verses. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethphage, to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put on them their cloaks, and he sat on them. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks in the road, and others cut branches from trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord! Hosanna in the highest. And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up saying, who is this? And the crowd said, this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. Amen. This is God's word. You can be seated. So our, our passage begins with Jesus um, and coming to Jerusalem, he'd come up that Jericho Road, and now for the last time, he's coming up that Jericho Road. It's, it's this long ascent from the lowest city on earth, Jericho. Um, can't remember the exact elevation below sea level, but I think it's like 1,200 feet below sea level. The lowest place on earth. Jericho is the lowest city on earth. And then you go up into the mountains or the hill country of Judea where Jerusalem is. And he'd been up this road most of the years of his life. It, it, it's a Jewish tradition for all males within the country of Israel to go to three feasts a year. And so his family, being a very uh, faithful religious family, would have gone to at least one of those, if not all three of those feasts from, from Galilee all the way. They'd go down the Jordan to Jericho and up to Jerusalem. That's why you often read in the Bible, let us go up, because Jerusalem was higher than, than most of the routes you would take to Jerusalem. He had entered Jerusalem as a baby, in fact, when his, when his mother took him from Bethlehem. Um, and he came at the age of 12 for his bar mitzvah and stayed behind to talk to religious leaders. Remember when he, he, his mother and father thought he was in the, in the caravan and they couldn't find him and they had to go back and found he was speaking with the teachers of the law in the temple. And he came with his first few disciples when he began his ministry. And the following year with the 12 disciples at the Feast of Tabernacles and Hanukkah and Passover. John is the only gospel that talks about Hanukkah, but we recognize that was the feast they were attending. And now this last time, he's coming with a crowd that's focused on him with great expectations. There was a lot of tension in the air, however. Uh, uh, one gospel says his, his disciples followed with fear. 
because they knew there were threats on his life. And they were following with amazement, knowing that he's, he's walking right into the stronghold of those who wished him dead. And even though there was fear, there was also a great deal of hope that he was about to set up the kingdom. Was the kingdom of David about to be restored? Was the son of David about to send the Romans fleeing and end all the religious corruption that was going on and usher in this golden age of the nation of Israel? Or would all their hopes be dashed by the murder of their prophet, just as prophets of old were murdered in Jerusalem? Other so-called messiahs had come and, and been banished or killed and their followers hunted and scattered. So the disciples were probably wondering, which is it gonna be for us? Is, is this it? Is this the fulfillment when he reigns forever on the throne of David or like messiahs before him, will he be killed and we be scattered or ourselves killed? Verse one, as they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethphage on the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two disciples. So on the eastern side of the Mount of Olives, he sent disciples ahead to what I think was probably the village of Bethany. They're, they're approaching Bethphage, but just beyond Bethphage was Bethany where they had often spent time, where the home of Mary, Martha, and Lazarus was. Um, it's that, that's where Lazarus was raised from the dead. And that, that whole village was turned upside down when this prominent man in their community had died and then walked out of his grave. The community in mourning turned into a community of celebration and awe and wonder. It was because of this powerful sign and the village accepting Jesus as the Messiah that religious leaders decided they had to do something about Jesus. They had to end his life somehow. Verse two, saying to them, go to the village ahead of you and at once you will find a donkey tied there with her colt by her. Untie them and bring them to me. So there's a lot of conjecture of how this came about. Um, did, did Jesus prearrange it? Did he have supernatural insight? Just how did he know that there would be a donkey and a colt there? Well, he knew the prophecy of Zechariah. He knew the king would come riding on a colt, the foal of a donkey. It was time for that entrance. And we can see in scripture how he knew he would be raised in three days. Time and time again, we've seen him quote scripture. He knew that time had come. His father would provide the animal to fulfill the scripture. It couldn't be otherwise. And when you know something's of God and you know it's his time and you know it's his will and according to his word, well, it will come to pass. Sometimes people tell me they have faith for something or God has spoken to them about something and then it, it doesn't happen. Well, they may have strongly believed it would happen, but if it wasn't God's will or it wasn't his time, it's not gonna happen. Jesus relied on the Holy Spirit to confirm God's will and God's time, and he knew from God's word that it would come to pass. Verse three, if anyone says to you, tell him that the Lord needs them, he will send them right away. Remember that people in Bethany had seen this great miracle of the resurrection of Lazarus. He was walking among them, just from 
from the time just shortly before. So the people were asking, probably asking Lazarus, what was it like? You were dead. What did, did you see Father Abraham? What, what did you experience there? And what was it like when Jesus called you back into your body? I'm sure they were full of questions. When the disciples referred to the Lord, the people of Bethany knew exactly who they were referring to. They'd seen the disciples, and they'd, they'd been there for that funeral turn into celebration. And of course, they would loan the donkey and the colt to their master. But even more than that, this was God's will and God's timing. This was according to the word of God, and it would happen as predicted in the sacred scriptures. Verse four and five, this took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. Say to the daughter of Zion, see your king comes to you, gentle and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. That was a quote from Zechariah 9.9. 9. If the ancient kings of Israel came on a stallion, it was either war or someone was about to be judged. But if the king comes into a town on a donkey, it meant blessing and peace. Jesus was trying to help people understand the difference between his first coming and his second coming. He had come as the prince of peace to all who would receive him. They were looking for a king on a stallion. And on that same day, there was someone coming on a stallion on the western side of town, Pilate. And there would have been crowds uh, seeking to gain favor with Rome there to meet him as well. But the interesting thing about that day is it's five days before Passover. That particular day, according to the law, was when the Jews had to choose their sacrificial lamb for Passover. And Jesus was presenting himself as the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Who would choose him? And yet no one realized it at the time. And now that we look back and see what took place, we can decide to choose him as our Passover lamb. And let his blood be shed on our doorposts, the doorposts of our hearts, so that the destroyer will pass over us like he did in Egypt so long before. This king came in gentleness. He doesn't force his rule on our lives. He gently shows us that it is his right to rule since he's purchased us from the slavery of sin with his own blood. It's only fitting and proper that we yield our lives to this gentle king who gave us all that we have and made us all that we are. In this first coming, he doesn't assert his lordship. Rather, he invites us to accept his wonderful, gentle, loving guidance. It's such a sweet rule that he even calls it entering into his rest. The other spiritual power that would like to be Lord over our lives is anything but gentle or restful. It's more like being driven. Crafty is the word used to describe him 
in Genesis chapter 3. He promises what he never delivers. He promises happiness at a minimal cost, but he extracts more than we could ever imagine. His MO is to kill, steal, and destroy. And not only would you, not, that is not at all what you would call gentle by any means, he promises you can rule yourself, but before long you find yourself subjugated as a slave. His most cunning trick of all is to, to get you to think that you're your own master when in fact he's enslaved you to his destructive devices. As for me and my house, we choose the gentle king. We choose the one who invites us to yield our lives to his gentle lordship, which is our place of rest. I hope you've chosen the same. Verse 6. The disciples went and did as Jesus had instructed them. In verse 7, they brought the donkey and the colt and placed their cloaks on them, and Jesus sat on them. Matthew's the only one that talks about two animals, a donkey and her foal. The other three gospel writers just focus on the foal. And it was amazing, for Mark tells us no one had ever ridden this colt. But of course, Jesus is the creator, and creation obeys him. He called fish into the disciples' nets. He stopped the wind and the waves with a word. He healed physical deformities by commanding it to be so. It shouldn't surprise us that the foal yielded its back. This is the first time I noticed that Jesus used both animals. Did you notice that? On them. He sat on them. I, I imagine he rode that colt as far, far as that colt could carry him and then rode on his, the colt's mother, which was bigger and stronger. God cares about his creatures. And if he cares about the load they carry, don't you think he's concerned about the load that you are carrying? And that's why he invites us to come and cast our load upon him. He's not only gentle, but he's compassionate and he is all-powerful. He cares about what you're enduring today. Luke adds to this account in Luke 19, 41 to 44. He says, and when they drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, would that you, even you had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you, and they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. I imagine him cresting the Mount of Olives and then seeing the city before him, the temple walls glistening with white and gold. The temple itself could be seen rising above the walls with its great bronze pillars inside, where God dwelt with his people before the glory departed. But now God in the flesh was sitting on that colt. With eyes blurred with tears, he could see the coming destruction. He knew he'd be rejected 
and hung on, on a cross and as so vividly portrayed a thousand years earlier by King David in Psalm 22. He knew that as the Prince of Peace, he would be rejected, but false messiahs would come and they would be accepted, which would end in the destruction of the city and the death of tens of thousands of Jews who longed for a militant messiah. He was weeping for those who were cheering for him at that moment, but who would soon turn against him. And he weeps for all who turn against him, for he's not willing that any should perish. He longs to give us his peace, to enter his rest. Verse 8, a very large crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and while others cut branches from trees and spread them on the road, they paved the way for the king with palm branches in their cloaks. The disciples and other followers must have thought they had arrived and that the beginning of the new kingdom of Israel had begun. The tension was easing for the crowd seemed to catch on to what was happening. They surely heard about Lazarus being raised from the dead and they even seemed to connect Jesus with the promise of the Messiah from Psalm 118 for they sing that song on feast days and now they were singing it to him as he rode in. Psalm 118, 25, O Lord, save us. O Lord, grant us success. Save us is that word we trans that, that we used in the original, Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. From the house of the Lord, we bless you. The Lord is God and he has made his light to shine upon us. With bows in hand, join in the festal procession up to the horns of the altar, which is where they were headed. You are my God and I will give you thanks. You are my God and I will extol you. Give thanks to the Lord for he is good and his love endures forever. That last verse is a little one line song. The first song sung when the temple was filled with the glory of God. The glory of God was about to walk into the newer temple that Herod had remodeled. He came suddenly to the temple, just as the prophet Malachi had predicted. Verse 9, the crowds that went ahead of him and those who followed him shouted, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes into the Lord in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. All the right words, but all for the wrong reasons. And doesn't that happen to us as well? We say and pray things that are really focused on temporal success, on making us great or more respected by others. And whenever we think about, for example, wanting Wayside to be packed out to overflowing like it was back in the 80s or 70s, we must always ask ourselves why we desire it. Is it so that we can be part of something bigger and better? Is it so that we can have more influence in our community? Wanting to pack the place may be the right request, but what is the reason? Is it so that souls might hear the words of life and know Christ and then make him known? If our request is for God's glory, we're on the right track. But always remember it must be his will and his timing. The crowds in Jerusalem had selfish interests in mind. James said that when we ask for the wrong motives, 
we have selfish lust which we desire to fulfill. And God does not answer those requests. May God give us the right words with the right reasons. Verse 10, and when Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred and asked, who is this? And that is the question, isn't it? It's one Jesus asked of his disciples, who do men say that I am? The answer to the city's question set the stage for the days that followed. They did not have the revelation that Peter had, where Peter said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus told Peter that his father in heaven gave him that revelation. That indeed is what it takes, a revelation that Jesus is Lord. But, verse 11, the crowds answered, this is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth of Galilee. He's just a man, a prophet from that little town of Nazareth. Galilee was a region that was associated with the zealot movement, a movement that wanted to mil militarily throw out Rome. And it may be that by mentioning Galilee, they were associating more with that violent movement than with the Son of God who is the Prince of Peace. Who is he to you? The world today would like to call him a prophet. Certainly he was that. But to us who know him as our Savior, he is so much more. They wanted him as a king who would fulfill their dreams. For some people today, it's the same. We should want him as our King of Kings. We should desire for him to master us as he mastered that little unbroken colt. There's a beautiful fiction that I heard from Pastor Ed Reyes about this little foal. The next day, the colt went back to the same road and he held up his head high. No one applauded. No shouts of Hosanna were heard. No palm branches were waved. No one bowed in reverence. What's going on here, the little foal asked. He bucked and he neighed. What's the matter with everyone? Can't you see? I'm back. And his mother said, silly child, it wasn't you they were lauding. It was the one you carried. We desire to be a vessel for his use. We want him to get all the glory, though, not us whether it's in seeing souls saved or, and delivered and discipled or to grow in numbers, we want it all for the glory of God. We want the king to reign in our fellowship and in our individual lives. We want to love one another with his love. You know, uh, years ago, Masterpiece Christian Art Theater did a, uh, uh, an art, get, turned our downstairs into an art gallery paintings um, of the animals in the Bible. And one of them was this tall, narrow painting. And it was of this scene of the Hosanna Road. The, the painting was commissioned to a man who was not a believer. And so he began painting the Hosanna Road. And as he got down, he decided to put Jesus in the center near the bottom of the picture it's full of people and, and architecture and everybody's waving and there's the palm branches, but down at the bottom where Jesus is on the donkey, 
there's a blind man reaching up to touch Jesus. And when the artist got to that, that part of the painting, he realized he was the blind man. And he reached out and he touched Jesus. And he was saved. He was born again. There's another true story of a jockey who attended church, not this one, a different church, on a Palm Sunday. And he was really, he was, he came, which he didn't usually do, but he came because he was disgusted at his lack of discipline. He kept failing, he kept getting in trouble because he just couldn't control his actions. And when he heard the story of the unbroken colt, he knew that it took six weeks to break a colt and it took another six weeks to, to teach them to behave in a crowd or be calm enough and take orders from whoever's guiding it to, to not hurt anybody or bolt and run. And then it dawned on him, this was nothing short of a miracle. And if Jesus could master that unbroken colt, surely he could master me. And right then and there, he yielded his life to the master. Jesus rides gently into our lives today. We all have differing ideas of who he is and what he means to us, but there's only one response that he's looking for. Who desires him to be their gentle king? Who would have him master their passions and their mind, their will and their emotions? Who desires him to reign in their thought life? He's the only one who can tame energies of youth, the self-seeking desires of man's heart, and channel our energies into his higher purposes, giving us real rest for our souls. We can shout with the crowd, save us, bless us. Blessed are you who comes in the name of the Lord. But if we don't want this gentle master to master us, if we only believe he's a good prophet to obtain a better physical life for us right now, how can he save us from our own wicked hearts? He needs to unconditionally be our king if he is to save us. We must give him the freedom to reign in our hearts to make the necessary changes we need to truly live. Is he free to master you today? Or is there an area of donkey-like stubbornness that remains unbroken? Will you give him permission this morning to master you? Don't just give him lip service like that crowd that welcomed him into Jerusalem. Yield your heart. Don't just seek a king to serve your purposes. Seek a king so honorable, so gentle, so loving that you desire to serve his purposes. I'm gonna ask Jill if she would come up and close us with the song and then I'll give the benediction. And I'm gonna stay up front after the service if anyone would like prayer, please come up.